We'll have the congregation turn your Bibles once more to Jeremiah chapter 31. And read again with me verse 1. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Well, last Lord's Day, we had the privilege of considering this book written by the prophet Jeremiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sometimes called the Book of Comfort or the Book of Consolation. Here, chapters 30, 31, 32, 33, comprises this special book within the book of Jeremiah that holds forth promises of deliverance, restoration, and salvation under the new covenant. And indeed, though written in the days of the Old Covenant, it yet speaks of a time after the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We considered that in a number of areas in the 30th chapter. Verse 9, we read, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. We saw it again in verses 20 and 21. Their children shall be as before time, and their congregation shall be established after me, and I will punish all that oppress them, and their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them. That governor is the same one referred to as David earlier on, and it goes on, and I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engageth his heart, gauged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Likewise, we could say that the 24th verse of that chapter also speaks of the days of the Messiah under the new covenant. It says in verse 24, the fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he have done it, and until he have performed the intents of his heart in the latter days, ye shall consider it. The latter days. Indeed, it's not the only place that refers to the times of the Messiah, the times of the new covenant, as the last days of this planet and world. Think of Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward shall the children of Israel turn and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Or in the, what the apostle wrote in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So this is speaking of the days of the Messiah, the days in which we live after the first coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Indeed, 
This 31st chapter is perhaps the most significant part of the entire book of comfort, the most important part of Jeremiah's prophecy, perhaps the most important chapter of the Old Testament itself, speaking of the times in which we live in great clarity and in great spiritual depth. They were given in order to nurture the faith of the Lord's people during the times of the exile before the Lord's coming. And since the Lord's coming, they have continued to sustain the faith of the Lord's people. What a precious thing that we should also be able to consider this prophecy of the new covenant. It's this covenant with which uh, we have to do. It's this covenant that the Lord is pleased to work in and through in order to save his people, in order to build his church, and in order to perfect and purify his church. The new covenant, the same as the very gospel of salvation. And it's this which I wish to speak about as we consider this first verse, where it connects everything that happens that happens both in the first verse and the whole chapter with these last days of the Messiah at the same time. So not a different time, but at that time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. With the Lord's help, I wish to consider the covenant with the Lord's people, the covenant with the Lord's people. And it's my special desire that this would stir us up in order to pray in this special prayer day service, prayers for our church and nation and ourselves as well. So the covenant with the Lord's people. And let's begin just by examining these words on the surface. What is it that we see in this first verse of this most precious chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be a God, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. I wonder, children, uh, are some of those words sounding very familiar? I know that in your Sunday school, as well in some of the sermons that you've heard, you've heard about Abraham, Abraham. And how was it the Lord made a special covenant with Abraham as well as his children, his seed? Didn't we learn about that when we had that sermon on circumcision? I'm sure you were paying attention. And you remember that in that part of the word of God, uh, the Jehovah appeared unto Abraham. And what did he say? He said, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Same kind of language is in our text. I will be the God of all the families of Israel. And every Lord's Day, what do we read when we read those Ten Commandments? What are the, the first words that we hear? Oh, we hear those words. I am the Lord, thy God. I am your God, Jehovah says. 
Every Lord's Day, those words come to our ears. I am your God. And they are really a a part of the the full formula, the, um, the core and the essence of God's gracious covenant with his church. They're perhaps um, found throughout the whole Bible. We, we uh, read them last Lord's Day from the 30th uh, chapter and verse 20. Ye shall be my people and I will be your God. Or I will be your God, you shall be my people. Those words found out throughout the whole Bible. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, when we think of this covenant, it's not merely just an agreement between two sides, two parties in a sort of detached way, like a business agreement that you might draw up if you were going to sell something or enter into a partnership. No, it's much closer to a marriage covenant because the heart of this covenant is to bring us into the closest relation to God. God being a God to us, we being the people separated unto God. Very personal, very warm, very inviting. The heart of the gracious covenant of the Lord unto his church is set forth here. And it wasn't only in our day that there was this personal note to God's covenant. It was found from the days of the Old Testament, from the days of Abraham, and going right through the whole history of this people of Israel that Jeremiah was writing and preaching to. When the Lord's servant Moses prophesied and preached in the book of Deuteronomy, he spoke in in a very clear way that the covenant of God with his church and people, even in those Old Testament times, was about this gracious relationship of love. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and following. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It almost sounds like a paradox. The Lord didn't love you because you were this or that, but the Lord loved you because the Lord loved you. No explanation given other than that of the gratuitous, one-sided, gracious love of God, setting his mercy and kindness on 
this people Israel. That was the kind of God he was unto that people, separated from all the pagan nations, heathen nations that worshiped the false gods, was this one nation specially designed for the worship and favor of God to be a nation of priests worshiping and serving the living God of heaven and earth. It was this that the Lord purpose to uh, transact with his people, the gracious covenant with Israel. And yet we saw from the last time that it was this covenant that the people broke and were not faithful to. Many of them had no faith in this God. Many of them saw no use for his commandments. And so there was this terrible judgment that was coming. And now there's this exile. They are brought into this land of captivity. Both the northern kingdoms uh, had already been brought away into Assyria. And now even the southern kingdom where uh, Jeremiah had been preaching would also be brought into captivity in Babylon. And in order to nurture and sustain their faith, there is now this promise That in the latter times, in the same time in which the Messiah will come, saith the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. As we consider just the surface reading of that and, and what it may mean, let's just notice this. That the Lord's covenant faithfulness is not interrupted by the fluctuating tides of history. We come into this place and there may be great worries about what is happening in the world today. Financial collapse, perhaps on the horizon, perhaps escalating war, perhaps greater tyranny and oppression of Christians here at home. Or perhaps in your own personal life, there's uncertainty about the future. How is it that we will make this decision or that decision? How is it that we can go on if this or that should happen to us? The Lord is the same. He was the same under the old covenant, same under the new. The same gracious God desires genuine relation unto his people. Can it be that we would... Approach this God in a cold and a formal manner? Certainly not. He is a God of personal relationship. He has sinners invited into this covenant of grace in order that they would call upon him personally as their God. With this, let it especially stir us up in this prayer meeting to come unto him with boldness, confidence, and great Uh, affection and love. All that under the heading of the surface meaning of these words, but let's further examine these words under this consideration. Why does it speak of the families of Israel? At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people? Well, uh, When we examine that use of the words, it's actually not unique to the section of the Bible. 
What we have here is a word, the families, which surfaces whenever the uh, scripture author would want to technically describe the exact numbers of the people of God. Let me tell you what I mean. If you go back in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, you have the people of Israel being prepared to leave out of the, the land of Egypt. And the Lord gives specific instructions to number the people, to count them head for head and to count them in their specific tribes as they're descended and united to specific patriarchs. So Exodus 6, verse 13 and following, the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron and gave them a charge unto the children of Israel and unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These be the heads of their families, oh, sorry, of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Camri. These be the families, families, note, families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Hoad and Jachin and Zohar and Shal, the son of the Canaanitish woman. These are the families of Simeon. So it's used there whenever the Lord is, is trying to zero in on the particular names and faces and persons that make up this great multitude of the nation. Of course, there's a whole book called the Book of Numbers. Why is it called there? Well, because great sections of that are based on counting, counting all the descendants of the different tribes of Israel. Again, Numbers 3, verses 15 and 17. Number the children of Levi after the house of their fathers by their families. Every male from a month old and upward shall thou number them. And Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names, Jeshurun and Kohath and Mamre. And again, you find this word of of families according to these different tribes throughout this chapter. So the emphasis here is that the entire people of God, all the families composed of Israel, shall be numbered among this people whom the Lord claims. He will be a God to them and they will be his people. Well, the challenge there, of course, is how are we to explain that? We know that under the new covenant, after the Lord Jesus comes, it wasn't the case that the great number of the nation accepted the message of Messiah or received blessing from him. We know that, in fact, the great number rejected him. And indeed, in 70 AD, there was a terrible catastrophe and they were driven from the land in great numbers as the Lord Jesus had prophesied in various places. And so how is it that we're to understand this promise in the light of that? Well, let me give you uh, two things that flow out of the surface meaning of this text that would help us particularly understand what is being spoken of here. And I want to... Uh, divide this under two headings. First, 
heading would be this. Uh, the promise here of the new covenant and all the families of Israel being owned as God's people, it is specific reference to the Lord's covenant elect. The Lord's covenant elect. And if you've been tracking with my, the way I'm dealing with these prophecies in both chapter 30 and 31 from this book of comfort, you know that I've, I've been arguing that this is how Jeremiah often speaks. He speaks of new covenant realities using the old covenant language. Old covenant realities are in the language, but what it's speaking about are things that are different. And so a number of times we've spoken about how Christ is spoken of as David. And we spoke about how David is not really in view, but rather the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. So also, I think we can say that one of the ways in which this is fulfilled is that the total number, numbered person for person, head for head, all of the Lord's covenant elect are comprehended here as the Lord's people. And last time we spoke somewhat of this when we considered the doctrine of baptism from Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 in the evening service. And we said that the promises of the Lord's covenant, according to the Apostle Paul there, did not exactly have reference to the entire nation of the people in one way. Rather, it had special reference to the special chosen ones who were separated unto eternal life. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and that seed, and to that seed, which is Christ. And you'll remember that I uh, sought to verify that the way Christ is being used there is really God's elect in Christ. So the corporate group of people united to Christ in faith, that is, those who are the true heirs of the promises of the Lord's gracious covenant. And what I didn't say at that point, but what I will say now, is that, that you are forced to that position if you're going to make the apostle consistent with himself. For the very argument that he makes in another of his epistles, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and following, he makes the same point and argues exactly this, that the true Israel, the true covenant people, are those who are numbered among his elect. So Romans 9, verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because... They are the seed of Abraham, are they all children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And if that was not sufficiently clear, that not unto the Israel of the flesh, but unto this elect Israel of the spirit, do the promises belong? Well, we could consider what the apostle wrote in that uh, sixth chapter of Galatians, which we read. 
chapter 6, verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now, if you track with that argument that uh, Paul is making there, he's concluding this colossal uh, refutation of the error of the, of the Judaizers who wanted to add circumcision to the requirements under the new covenant and, and ultimately to the gospel itself. And he concludes that whether you're circumcised or not is nothing. Rather, what matters is a new creature, a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ, being born again through the Spirit of God, placing your faith in the promises of Christ Jesus as the source of your righteousness and justification. These are the things that matter, not a membership in a physical nation. No, rather it is that membership in a spiritual people whom are the New Testament church of the elect. And to heighten this in verse 16, as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them in mercy and upon the Israel of God. You could also translate, even upon the Israel of God. It is this people whom Paul is not shy to apply the very name Israel. Those separated unto eternal life in Jesus Christ. Those who are new creatures born again through the Holy Spirit. These, God's covenant elect, are called the Israel of God. And so, come back to our text. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel and upon and they shall be my people. I say that the, that the first place we should understand this is that now the type is giving way unto the antitype. Now the shadow is giving way unto the reality that all these things were about. You see, in that physical nation of Israel, yes, there was the true people of God. Yes, there was the number of God's elect among them. But really, that physical people with a physical land was also pointing ahead to a reality that was far greater. A people separated unto eternal life. Not merely a visible, visible land with with uh, um, the blessings of milk and honey and so forth, but a people separated unto the new heavens and the new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. It was this, that this prophecy specifically concerned. So, you believer, you who are troubled with all your different cares and worries, may this be what stirs you up both to pray and to worship and to glorify your Lord, that you are separated unto eternal life, no less than all others comprehended in the Lord's saving covenant. That indeed, as it concerns the ultimate fruition and blessing of this covenant, it belongs in a special way unto those for whom it was particularly intended. 
those whom the Lord would call unto eternal life. And as you come to see that, that this covenant is most personal, not only a, a great mass of people, but particular numbers, particular families, particular individuals, and each one bonded unto the Lord in this special promise, I will be their God and they shall be my people. May this move you unto great humility, great brokenness, great awe, that you should be numbered among those who would receive blessings such as these, even the blessings of eternal life in Jesus Christ, though completely unworthy and no different than any others whom are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Yet you are separated unto the Lord's people, and you are his precious possession. May it cause you to truly see the Lord's amazing and astonishing, undeserved love and bring you unto a complete dependence upon him. If that is the nature of it that's being spoken of here, the uh, covenant elect and all of them numbered in this covenant of grace, we also ought to see that there is also, I believe, a literal fulfillment for the actual people of Israel. And while not universally held, it is the great majority position of the Reformed Church, if you look at our Reformed Fathers, that there are promises that also concern that group of people. And this prophecy of Jeremiah certainly does have some sections that concern this. So if you contrast it, for example, with what we've already covered in the previous chapter, chapter 30 and verse 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And then you... Uh, trace the, the various ways in which this nation is referred to throughout uh, the 30th chapter and, and now into the 31st chapter in this first verse, it does seem as though there, there are things that could indeed refer to the physical nation of Israel, even that people that rejected the Lord, that were for the most part and the great majority cast away, from the blessings of the Lord's salvation because of their hardness of heart. Yet also there is this held forth to them that they shall also be owned as his people. And of course, in our series on covenant theology and uh, infant, uh, or rather sacraments and baptism and so forth, we consider that when we read uh, Romans 11, did we not? Romans 11, verses 23, and so forth. You have words that really defy explanation unless you would see it as holding forth the Lord's promise to save his people Israel. Romans 11, verses 23, and so forth. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert 
For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into the good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. They shall come out of Zion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So it's there's no contradiction, I believe, to see that there's multiple fulfillments here. Yes, God's elect numbered unto eternal life in every age. They shall be owned as the Lord's people under the new covenant, but also in the days of the Messiah, after his glorious coming, there will also come a day in which all of Israel, all the families of Israel, all the descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, corporately as a nation, will also be saved, says the Apostle Paul, in conformity to what we read here in Jeremiah's prophecy. And this is in particular what I would desire, that this promise which is held for should stir us up in particular to pray for the fulfillment of this promise. If you would read our Reformed Fathers, they were very clear that Christians should pray for the conversion of the Jews in particular. That There was this promise that they would all be engrafted in again unto the gospel church and that this would bring blessings unto the whole world. Consider the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 191, which says, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? And this is the answer that it says. In the second petition, which is, thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. And it goes on, but listed right there, the salvation of the Jews. And why would they particularly pray that? Well, because Paul in that same chapter, Romans 11, spoke about how it would bring great blessings unto all Christians when the Jews are called. Romans 11, verse 12. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So what is the argument? Well, they fell away from the Lord's gracious covenant in Christ, and that brought a measure of riches as the Gentiles were brought in their place. But how much more their inclusion and fullness, how much more goodness will that bring? And then Romans 11, verse 15, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And we don't know exactly what does that mean, life from the dead. Is that, does that mean a great revival or a great uh, awakening? Is there a spiritual life throughout nations? Does that mean it would bring about the end of the world and the and the resurrection from the dead? Well, there's, there's different views about that. But in either respect, 
it's talking about something that is infinitely more glorious than, than what would precede. The way I would understand that is more, more probably a great revival. Because if you think about the great promises that the prophets speak of, even the one we considered at great length, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. How could such an increase and and such a a great uh, gathering in of the Lord's people and the conquest of the nations, how could this be realized without a great revival before the Lord's coming? And so I think we have good reason to see that what is held forth here is something that we have every reason to pray for in particular. You know, I believe it's a great mistake where people say that the people of Israel are already just fine as they are. They have their nation, they have their borders, they have their military and, and material prosperity and so forth. But the nature of the Lord's gracious covenant is not in these things. It is rather in the blessedness of knowing God as our God and Jesus Christ. And apart from that, there can be no spiritual help. We know, of course, that in the nation of Israel's very constitution, they deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They forbid the sharing of the gospel in that nation. There's a great normalization and celebration of homosexuality and various other things which are displeasing unto the Lord. They do not have the kind of kind of blessings that the Lord would have them to if they would turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. But how beautiful to think that even the visible nation of Israel, even that physical posterity of Abraham would turn unto the true substance of the gospel. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, there's a most moving prophecy about this. The Lord says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The very people whom the the very people who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and had him pierced upon the cross, that very people would mourn over him, would rejoice over the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham, the true seed of David, the true Messiah of God, come in the flesh, come as the Savior. Oh, that such a great work of God would take place. For we know that after all these years, all of the, the sadness, all of the tragedy of the people of Israel, to have them finally come home unto the Lord who has had so much dealings with them in the past, it is almost incomparably beautiful to the one who has the true heartbeat of the scriptures. It's interesting that you read these psalms that we sing and how many of them are prayers on the lips of Jewish, Christ- Jewish believers For the gathering of the Gentiles who were yet in spiritual bondage. 
Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Prayers for the pagans, the Gentiles, worshiping false gods when they had no care or love for Jehovah. Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Would it not be a wonderful thing if even this sermon, even if this verse holding forth the promise of the gathering of the Jews and their calling unto the true church and gospel of God would yet stir up his people as in days of old to plead for the fulfillment of this promise and the great blessings unto the world that this may bring. We live in dark days and we know not exactly how some of these things will take place. The times or the seasons are in the Lord's hands, but the history of this world is not concluded The Lord and his Christ will yet reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And the calling of us as the church and the people of God is that we would stir ourselves up, that we would look unto him, and that we would plead that he would do what he has spoken. All praise.